Hello. Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. My audio sounds terrible because we're recording over Zoom because Jane is no longer with me, with us. <laughs> she died. She, she's recording from past grave. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but um, I got a new laptop and lo and behold, I cannot plug my microphone into the new laptop without an adapter, which is en route. So you're hearing me through some lovely AirPods and you're hearing Jane over Zoom. Does it sound terrible to just you or will it sound terrible to everyone? It'll sound like, it'll sound scratchy to others. Like you're going to sound pretty much fine, but mine's going to sound, mine's not, I'm not going to sound as good this week um, for audio purposes. My voice is still in top condition, um, but mm-hmm. I just want to tell everybody that's what's going on. I'm, I'm recording through a single AirPod at the moment. <laughs> really working hard. Um, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm exhausted. I, I had kind of a traumatic night and then once it was over I was really wired and had trouble sleeping because I was just wide awake but basically my one of my cats blue who's like my most innocent and sweet of my cats oh um, he's such a good boy I know he went missing for a bit um he's normally like desperate for treats that my dad gives him every night but at last night around like nine o'clock or maybe it was like nine thirty, my dad came into my room and said, Do you have any cats with you? And I said, No. And he was like, Well, that's odd. None of them came for treats. And normally all three of them like make an appearance and blue's the most desperate for them. He will like like he's normally so sweet, but like he will kill someone for a treat. Um, <laughs> get out of my way. But he wasn't around. And we went looking for all of them because all of them were missing and Mm -hmm. we found that the side door to the garage was wide open and Mm -hmm. Kramer my fuzzy yellow cat came running in right away and my little tiny cat Cricket who's sitting here with me right now hello she (laughs) was found in the house shortly thereafter but we couldn't find Blue and so my mom and I spent hours outside in the rain calling him trying to find him and after a while we thought he had probably gone out the door so what we did was we locked the other two cats in the sunroom with my mom and Mm -hmm. left the garage door open so that if he was out he could come back in and then I sat by the door for Mm -hmm. like hours doing my um online homework and just like waiting to see if he would come in and then it got to be about close to midnight and my mom came and talked to me and was like okay it's getting late you should go to bed I'll lie down in the sunroom with the other two cats and then I'll get up at like 4 a.m. and go looking again. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, but I'm going to do one more loop. So I did one more loop around the house calling him. And by the way, the neighbors saw me and apparently they were outside for some reason. And they were like, they thought I was my mom. And they were like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, I'm looking for my cat. He's gray. Um, (laughs) He's a good boy. (laughs) And then when I got to the backyard, I found a dead mouse on a rock, which looked like a cat had killed it and put it there. And (laughs) you left a message. Yeah. And I should say Kramer, when he, Kramer also brought in a mouse. Mm -hmm. I've been hunting, but I thought, oh, maybe he's out here like hiding somewhere so that he can like catch mice and he's hunting. Right. I went, so I finished the loop around my house and I went inside and I told my, and I was in the process of telling my mom exactly what I had found. And then I turn on my left and blue, soaking wet, is staring at me like, 
<laughs> like I'm back. <laughs> and I went and I woke up my dad and all of us like were showering him with attention and giving him treats and loving on him. And it was very nice. But then at that point I was like wide awake. So I didn't get much sleep last night. Right. And that happened. But luckily he's back. He's safe. He's very Aww. sweet and happy to be home. That's so good. That's why I'm kind of tired. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. It's been really weird being alone in the apartment for a week now, almost. Um, like I was, I feel like quarantine. I was so used to like having people around and being in our my house in Pennsylvania, and now being back here, it's like now I'm in an apartment and like yeah, it's my space, but my roommates aren't here. I don't know. It's really weird. It's super empty. Jane took the table, so we just have a big hole in the living room. <laughs> Oh, Jane, your room now is the room of shit I'm donating. Um, great, <laughs> it's great, just great. Over, overflowing with goodies. So that's been exciting. But I've just been trying to get it together. I am moving in August. So it's nice because instead of like having to hustle to get everything together, I know that I'm moving. I've got like two months to prepare. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, today I'll go through this drawer. Today I'll go through this drawer. Um, and I've already made a lot of progress. So my week's been good, but it definitely is odd. Mm-hmm. being back here alone although I am going back to Pennsylvania um later this week but your mom texted me a good. picture of Felix and said that yeah she told me she was gonna do that she was like I should text Jane and tell her I miss her and I was like you should she's like and I'll send her a picture of Felix I was like I'm she'd like that <laughs> so I'm glad she did, I did it. like it I loved it are we ready to get started sure let's okay. do it so you asked me about the NRA. Yes. Also, happy cancer season, everybody. Let's let's all just breathe through it. <laughs> so all my firesides out there, you're going to get through this and you're going to be okay. <laughs> and Mars is in Aries, which I just hate. So there's that. Okay. So <laughs> speaking of things that make me nervous, the NRA. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> The NRA stands for the National Rifle Rifle Association of America, and it is an American gun rights advocacy group. Oh, Jesus. Rolls eyes. In 1861, two men named R.G. Moulton and R.B. Perry sent a letter to President Lincoln and had the same letter published in the New York Times. The Civil War had just started two months prior, and the letter recommended forming an organization that was similar to the British National Rifle Association, which mm-hmm. had formed a year and a half earlier. Mm-hmm. They suggested in their letter creating a shooting range and offering Whitworth rifles as prizes for shooting competitions. Oh. Dismayed by the lack of marksmanship shown by the troops, Union veteran Colonel William C. Church and General George Wingate formed the NRA in 1871. Mm -hmm. The primary goal was, quote, to promote and encourage rifle shooting on a scientific basis. That is still what their website says is the goal of the group. Okay. Many people in Civil War times were suddenly the owners of rifles. And the idea of starting the NRA was to encourage education on how to use them so that we could all use them safely Uh and just encourage uh, effective and appropriate gun use. Okay. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. The Union Army um, 
has records from the Civil War that indicate that its troops would fire about a thousand rifle shots, and for every thousand ones they shot, only one would get be a would hit a Confederate soldier. What? That's yeah. a terrible rate. So <laughs> that was the that's really bad. I know. And I feel like. That- I feel like out of a, I'm not saying that I ever want to shoot a gun, but I feel like out of a thousand shots, I probably would get more than one. Ugh. I hopefully need to, but that wasn't the case. And it was obviously a large waste of time and bullets. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you're shooting a thousand times and only hitting. No, I one. agree with you so wholeheartedly. Like, <laughs> what a fucking waste. <laughs> Uh, General Ambrose Burnside, which what a great name. Mwah. Yeah. Mwah. Ambrose Burnside, who wow. was a Rhode Island. Just rolls gunsmith. off the tongue. Yeah. He was a Rhode Island gunsmith and a, the first president of the NRA. And he mm-hmm. was quoted to say, out of 10 soldiers who are perfect in drill and manual of arms, only one knows the purpose of the sights on his gun and can hit the broadside of a barn. <laughs> oh, sick burn. Burnside. <laughs> Maybe that's how he got his name. So basically, the Union Army was not known for their marksmanship. Definitely not. And the reason for this was that Union generals attributed this to the use of volley tactics, which were devi- devised for earlier, less accurate, smoothbore muskets. Yeah, so it I- sounds like a cute excuse. Yeah, like maybe I I'll think they're back. saying like but oh, they weren't even it. aiming, you know, they were just mm-hmm. shooting as much as they can to scare off the other side. Yes. Because actually attempting to shoot was is was so difficult. Yes. I am listening to you. I'm not sitting in front of the laptop. I went to open the freezer and there was a landslide, but I think I fixed it. <laughs> I was wondering what that sound was. And now I have a milkshake. So recognizing a need for better training with rifles, George Wingate sent emissaries to Canada, the UK, and to Germany to observe militia and armies marksmanship training processes in other countries so that we could learn from them and improve our own gun training processes. Yeah. And Wingate, from... All that he had learned, he made plans and he secured funding from the New York legislature to construct an up-to-date, at the time, gun range at Creedmoor, Long Island to hold long-range shooting competitions. It's funny that the first thing they were like, okay, here's how we make people better at shooting. We make them compete at who can be the best at it. Like, like as if a war didn't matter in having to do well. Exactly. It's like, well, we're at war, but I'm not going to try hard until you give me money. <laughs> what? We're in a war. <laughs> I agree. So the range that they built was in a really ideal location because it was right near where the Central Railroad of Long Island uh, built a station. Which, it was built after the gun range, but I, it, there was a station nearby. And trains ran from Hunter's Point that connected to a boat service to 34th Street in Manhattan and mm-hmm. the East River. So it was really easy to get there from New York City. Oh. And uh, so a lot of people just traveled there for the competitions that they held. Now, yeah. at the time, there was this um, annual match rifle competition 
um, that had been going on since 1860 called the Eltro Shield. And this was going on in England. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the uh, teams that were competing were England, Scotland, and Ireland. And now England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales compete, and it's an annual thing. Mm-hmm. But in 1873, the Irish rifle team won the Elcho Shield and defeated England and Scotland. And Except for Ireland, an underdog. <laughs> yeah, but they wanted to prove that they were not only the best in England, but they were the best in the Anglo-American world. So they wanted to challenge America uh-huh. to a competition. Right. So they issued a challenge through the New York Herald to riflemen of the United States to raise a team for a long-range match to determine the Anglo-American championship. The NRA organized a team through a subsidiary amateur rifle club, and Remington Arms and Sharps Rifle Manufacturing Company produced breech-loading weapons for the team. And there were teams of eight members. So they put together eight guys. And it was an odd choice, though, that they went with um, breech-loading weapons because they were known to be less accurate than muzzle-loading ones, which I don't know what either of those things are or what they mean, but basically they went with a kind of gun that was known to be less accurate. So I don't know why the choice was made to go with the breech-loading weapons, but it was. But despite that, they still won the competition, and the breech-loading weapons went on to become the standard one that most people used. Mm-hmm. Um, because of this, uh, well, because the challenge was came from the New York Herald uh, newspaper, a lot of publicity had been drummed up, especially from that newspaper, And when there was an American victory, there was just a a lot of publicity made a lot of headlines and it got a a lot of attention and it brought the NRA to national prominence. Everybody knew about it now. The NRA went on to organize rifle clubs in other states and became known as the experts of marksmanship. Many state national guards sought advice from the NRA on improving their members' marksmanship and... George Wingate, who was one of the founders, wrote a manual on marksmanship, and that piece of writing evolved into the United States Army Marksmanship Instruction Program. Okay. Interestingly, for less than a year from 1883 to 1884, former U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant served as the president of the NRA. I did actually know that. That is what inspired me to ask you this question. Was I saw that fact somewhere. They were like, did you know Ulysses S. Grant was the president of the NRA? And I was like, I need to know more about the NRA, apparently. (laughs) Well, like, it it, it was really different when it started than it is now. Yes. Which I, like, now I really want to go up to, like, my pro-gotten family members and have them go on and on about the NRA. Be like, can you even tell me why the NRA was started? I (laughs) can't. It was to help the Union Army. It was to help the Union Army. Oh, my God. Um, The U.S. Congress created the National Board for the Promotion of Rifle Practice in 1901, which included representatives from the NRA, the National Guard, and the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think it's literally just that the NRA was known as this group that just knew a lot about guns and how to use them. So yeah it was important to have people with that knowledge on your side when you're discussing like military strategy, how to train your troops. Right. Especially when they were just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, they're like the American civil war was not the first 
even the second war, America, even the third war that America was a part of, it was like the fourth or fifth. So like, like oh, we're really, but they won all the other ones. Like, were they just terrible? Or was it like there was a new type of gun and they didn't know how to shoot that kind of gun because they'd been using the old kind? I think it's a mix of the two. But again, they had different strategies for the old types of guns. They had more mm-hmm. of like a volley strategy, which like they weren't even trying to, I think there was less of a like, I'm pointing, I'm shooting, and I now hit my target before it was literally just like, mm-hmm. raise your weapon and shoot it till you feel safe again. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. That's terrible. That's awful. That's so bad. The pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In 1907, the NRA headquarters was moved to Washington, D.C. to facilitate the organization's advocacy efforts and their collaboration with the U.S. government. Ah, lobbying. Yes, we are aware. <laughs> In 1910, Springfield Armory and Rock Island Arsenal began the manufacture of M1903 Springfield rifles to sell to civilian members of the NRA. Oh. <laughs> and in 1912, the director of civilian marksmanship, I think within the NRA, began the manufacture of M1911 pistols for NRA members to purchase. Okay. So they really started to get into making money from selling guns around this yeah. point. Um, Who's President Roosevelt? That makes sense. That checks out. <laughs> Until 1927, if... Um, if a civilian rifle club existed and they had at least 10 members who were all U.S. citizens and over the age of 16, the U.S. Department of War would provide them with free ammunition, which sounds silly to me. Yeah, that does sound silly. But yeah. I think it's still, still back then, even then, they were like, well, we, they're forming a rifle club. That's where you practice how to get good at competing. And if we need them in the army... You know, yeah, I feel, and also, like, machine guns and things like that didn't really exist, or, like, rapid-fire guns at least didn't exist until World War One, at least. Mm-hmm. So, it still was, like, again, you have to keep in mind with the Bill of Rights, <laughs> is that when they talked about the right to bear arms, they weren't talking about individual people holding guns, they were talking about the right for people to form an army, and also that they were talking about guns that fired once every five or so minutes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it took a really long time. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that makes sense that this like, also like during this time, like big game hunting in Africa became a thing. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of which are wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> we're still not at machine gun territory, you know? Yes, yes, yes totally. In 1934, the National Firearms Act was passed, which imposed a statutory excise tax on the manufacture and transfer of certain firearms and mandated the the registration of those firearms. And it was the first gun control law passed in the U.S. So in response to the NFA, the National Firearms Act, the NRA formed its Legislative Affairs Division so that it could keep its members up to date on facts, rules, and help explain any future governmental bills. So at the time, they weren't against gun control. They were just like, oh, we should form a committee or form a group of people that are in charge of, oh, there's new rules regarding guns. We got to tell our people. Yeah. all (laughs) they did. They were in charge of Mm -hmm. explaining it to their members so that their members continued to be within 
the confines of the law. Okay. Uh, President Carl Fredericks of the NRA at the time said, quote, I never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I seldom carry one. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. Okay. This is the president of the NRA in 1934, which is a very long time ago. In 1938, the Federal Firearms Act of 1938 was passed, which imposed a federal license requirement on gun manufacturers, importers, and persons in the business of selling firearms. It was backed by the NRA. Uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> the NRA. We love restrictions. I know. At the, and they did, too, at the time. Um yeah. The NRA also supported the NFA as well as the Gun Control Act of 1968, which created a system to federally license gun dealers and establish restrictions on particularly on particular categories and classes of firearms. Okay. So up until 1968, NRA is totally on board with gun control. Well, mm-hmm. at, at least those in charge of the NRA are. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if that was still like racially prejudiced though that they wanted gun controls because they didn't want civil rights activists um particularly black people who are protesting a lot of the time and others protesting like the vietnam war to get access to guns that wouldn't surprise me if that's where that came from though oh that's totally true i don't know that for a fact it's just like well we talked about i mean 1968 is about the time that the black panthers were existing as a group and and how many times has 1959 come up? Them from carrying around weapons. Yeah, exactly. So that wouldn't surprise me if this was like a racially based thing, much like the Environmental Protection Agency was a racially based mm-hmm. establishment, you know. Mm-hmm. So would not shock me. No. So despite all this, the NRA opposed the National Firearms Registry, which was an initiative favored by the then President Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. So I'm I that thinking doesn't make sense to me that I I'm for gun registry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am for gun registry. Yeah. Well they um, were like well we want to be guess- able to classify who I think I think again I think it's they want to be able to control who gets guns but they wanted to control people that they didn't want to have guns and so they were trying to stop you know black and brown people and people like war um opponents of the war they probably were trying to do it so that can stop them somehow from getting the guns but they didn't want the registry because that would put restrictions on them oh yes i see that thinking that's my thinking yeah now but like i said the gun control act of 1968 was supported by the leadership of the nra but not as much the members um Mm -hmm. when it passed a growing number of nra members who were quote-unquote gun rights activists became that's not that's not a thing i I can't sorry (laughs) i can't but they became guns are inanimate objects they have no rights Uh, (laughs) Um, sorry well quote-unquote gun rights activists became galvanized to fight for that cause because they didn't think that the nra leaders were doing that for them so um in 1975 the organization began to move toward a focus on politics and lobbying. In 1976, they established the NRA Institute for Legislative Action with a gun rights activist named Harlan Carter as its director. Uh, this is, mm-hmm. I'm going to later refer to this as the NRA ILA. 
Okay. And Harlan Carter is a, a name to remember. The NRA ILA created a political action committee, a PAC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which also should be illegal. PAC yeah. and super PAC should not be a thing. It is called the Political Victory Fund, and it's still around mm-hmm. to this day. Mm-hmm. In 1978, there was a planned election for NRA leadership, and they held their annual convention in Cincinnati. And the convention that year would go on to be known as the Cincinnati Revolution, or sometimes it's also called the Cincinnati Coup or the Cincinnati Revolt or the Revolt at Cincinnati, which literally is just a fancy way of saying they changed up leadership at this one convention. Yeah. It was an election. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't a revolt. It was government. Exactly. Um, the NRA leadership at the time had planned to relocate the NRA headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Colorado and build a $30 million recreation facility in New Mexico. And it, it just really looked like the NRA was kind of go back to its roots of instructing people on using their firearms for things like hunting, sharpshooting, like sportsman competitions, um, nothing to do with like personal gun owning like keeping a gun in the home that type of thing and they didn't seem like they were really going to work towards fighting gun control the a lot of the members didn't like that and the pack that had been established oh so they voted to elect harlan carter as the executive director and there was this other guy named neil knox who shared the same values as carter he was very much Mm -hmm guns or guns rights guy and he was elected head of the nra ila carter and knox used their power to demand new leadership and criticize past nra leadership for going along with gun control legislation and believed that the nra should no longer come to any compromise with the u.s government over gun rights issues in the future and they shifted the entire nra as an organization to having very specific goals which it is known for today yeah In the 70s, its members were becoming increasingly aligned with the Republican Party, but after the Cincinnati Revolution, the organization focused heavily on political issues and forming coalitions with conservative politicians. So it pretty much became entirely Republican (laughs) after that. Yeah, that sounds like the NRA we know. Yep. In 1991, Neil Knox's supporters were elected to the board and they named staff lobbyist Wayne LaPierre as the executive vice president. He's still the guy in charge. He's, he's a horrible man. Since uh, 1991? That's insane. Now, again, he wasn't the president. He was the executive vice president. Vice president. But still, the one person in charge for that long? I know. That's nuts. That's insane. Uh, the NRA focused its attention on fighting gun control policies of the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And pretty much any time a Democrat's in office, that's what they're doing. They funnel so much money to the Republican Party. It's yeah. unbelievable. Uh, in 1997, movie star Charlton Heston ran for president of the NRA. He had a past of supporting gun control legislation, which didn't uh, which the NRA didn't love, but they loved the fact that he was a movie star who was bringing all this attention to the NRA, and he had yeah. the support of the more moderate members of the NRA. So he went on to be a five-term president of the NRA. How many years is that? I'm not sure how long a term is, but he was president until 2002. 
that's only five years actually so five i think years. it's oh, once okay. per year they have an election gotcha. Gotcha. um uh, yeah he remained president until he retired in 2002 after announcing that he had alzheimer's disease oh yeah um the nra uses its money and large loyal membership to influence legislative legislators voting behavior in their favor so essentially they know it we're voting on governmental issues and they say like if you vote against what the nra wants we will take money away from you and we will tell our members to not vote for you in the future yeah and so they have like huge that's like blackmail it's legal blackmail literally that um it's unbelievable. Because of this practice, they have not lost a major battle over gun control since the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. I can't, I, ah, I hate it. It's terrible. It's really so awful. Congress to halt government-sponsored research into public health effects of firearms. Oh my god! They literally awful. stopped the government from looking into it. Which That's you know terrible. The thing you're doing is bad if you won't let anybody look into it. Absolutely. In 2005, they used their resources to ensure the passage of legislation that made it impossible to sue gun dealers and manufacturers. At the state and local level, the NRA has successfully campaigned to deregulate guns. They have pushed governments to make it impossible for local governments to regulate guns. And they have removed restrictions on guns in public places, such as bars and campuses. The NRA website calls itself, quote, America's longest standing civil rights organization. It's not a civil right, though. It's oh, my not. God. Oh, my God. Like, I will give them the fact that they were founded to help the Union Army, but that is the right. only way they've ever helped civil rights in any way. It's true. It's so true. I can't stand these yeah. people. I really can't. Um, the political victory fund is a pack that is still around i think it might be considered a super pack now and it gives i'm sure it is it gives money to u.s presidential candidates endorsed by the nra which is always the republican candidate and investigations of the 2016 election by special counsel robert Mueller revealed that one of the ways that Russia influenced our election was by sending over these two people. One was the deputy director of the Central Bank of Russia named Alexander Torshin and his assistant Maria Butina. And he, they came over to America and they infiltrated the NRA and became like a big gun. T- like you can look them up on in- Maria Butina was big on Instagram, just being like, look at me mm-hmm. the NRA. Like, I'm right. So- and they use these connections to give money to the NRA on behalf of Russia. But they were just like, oh, we're just two people giving money to the NRA. And then the NRA gave that money to Trump. Mm-hmm. And it, it, like no one batted an eye about it because it's normal for the NRA yeah. to give a lot of money to the Republican candidate. Right. So like, yeah, of course. That makes so much sense. A lot of money, but they didn't think where. Yeah, they money. yeah that makes sense. Um. So even foreign countries are aware that the way to get a Republican candidate elected is through NRA money. So it's true. It's it's just this horrible thing that is is legal. Tight grip over that is legal. It's dumb. I hate it. I hate it. No, the it's like the NRA truly has more control over the Republican candidates than their constituents. It's unbelievable. I remember. I think it was the last midterm election so 2018 
there was a website where you can go and look up how much money the NRA had funneled to a candidate. And it was, it might have even been the 2016 election. And only two Democrats received money from the NRA. And they were both Democrats in like Kentucky and Oklahoma or something mm-hmm. like that. And they were both not even, they were both state representatives, not like Congress members, but like their smaller state government. Like it's truly unbelievable. I distinctly remember when Trump was um, was the candidate and people were like, oh, well, he's not going to win. Um, Clinton's mm-hmm. going to win. And then uh, it was announced that Wayne LaPierre endorsed Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden people were saying like, oh, well, he has the NRA. So now he's got more of a chance. But yeah. we still didn't think he it's would true. win. But, like that gave him a huge leg up. They were like, he has Absolutely. no chance unless Wayne LaPierre endorses him. And then that happened. So. Right. Here we are. And here we are. Thank you for explaining that. That was really enlightening. You know, it's interesting how these programs start as one thing and they evolve. And yeah. so now we associate the NRA as the super PAC that it is. Yeah. But that's not that's not the beginning of the story, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it is interesting to think about. Like, I wonder how many people that support the NRA and are such like rifle people you know gun people know why the nra was started well their website makes it seem like they're performing like historically important tasks like you can bring a, an, an anti-gun that you have from your family and from your ancestors and bring it in and they'll help you identify it and learn about it they, and mm-hmm. they teach marksmanship and like they're this educational source but it's so not that at all it's no um, not at all what a nightmare it is <laughs> What an absolute nightmare. But thank you for taking the time to explain that. You're welcome. So what are we doing for the middle part today? Well, for the middle part, you actually know a lot about this already. Ooh. Um, I'm going to be talking about the treasure of Forest Fen. Oh, my God. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I'm so excited. Everybody needs to know more about this. You just, You just go. Okay, okay. So Forrest Fenn was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and he was a Silver Star awarded major who was lauded for flying 328 combat missions in the Vietnam War in just 365 days. He was an antiques collector who started the Aerosmith Fenn Gallery with his partner Rex Aerosmith, which is another great name. Is he Aerosmith, like, of the band Aerosmith, or is it unrelated? No, it's spelled differently. It's spelled A-R-R-O-W-S-M-I-T. Oh, that's a dope name. I know. Um, But the gallery later was just owned by Fenn. The name was changed to Fenn Galleries, and he runs it Mm -hmm. with his wife, Peggy. Oh. Yeah. The gallery collects and sells a variety of Native American artifacts, paintings, sculptures, and other art, including forged copies of Modigliano, Monet, Degas, and others. Mm. And reportedly, the gallery makes Fen $6 billion a year. Wow. So that makes insane. a lot of money um, selling these artifacts, a lot of which I'm not sure you could say are technically his. A lot of yeah, I, I know that there's a lot cultures. of controversy that he, like, found them, yeah. you know, like, because he goes, he, like, excavates himself, essentially, mm-hmm. in all these places, um, and then he'll, like, sell them. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, if it was just, like, a gallery that you could come and look at things 
for free, maybe. Then I'd be like, yeah. okay, he's educating about history, but he's selling them and making a lot of money. Yeah. So yeah. It's a little it's sketchy. Up. In 1988, Fenn was diagnosed with cancer and was given the prognosis that it was likely terminal and that he wouldn't live super long. So he mm-hmm. had this idea and he put together a treasure chest filled with artifacts worth reportedly up to $2 million. And he hid mm-hmm. it in an outdoor location with the purpose of creating a public search for it. So a treasure mm-hmm. hunt was started. I love this. He also intended for the location of the treasure to be his final resting place, forever connecting his legacy to the treasure hunt. He really Ooh. wanted to, it really sounds like he really wanted to be known as like an Indiana Jones type, which I, I love I that get, for him. You know? That's fun. Yeah, I get it. He recovered from his illness. And then in 2010, he wrote a memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, a memoir. And he filled it with short stories from his life. Mm-hmm. In the book, he describes the treasure chest containing gold nuggets rare coins jewelry and gemstones and he says that he hid it in the mountains somewhere north of santa fe he says that the stories in his book contain hints to the treasure's location as well as a poem that he wrote uh which can be found in the book that has reportedly nine clues in it that lead you to the treasure's location Mm -hmm. fen claimed to make no money on the sale of the book so people couldn't accuse him of making up the treasure and then just selling a book about it so that he could make money from the book Right. I don't know how you don't make money from a book that is self-published, but maybe he's donating it. I don't know. That's odd. I don't know the answer to that one. It'd be fun if maybe he could say at the end of it, like, all of the profits from this book will be given to the finder of the... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm now going to read to you the poem that is the... the, We love the poem. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasure bold, I can keep my secrets where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm weathers halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. That's the beautiful poem that contains yeah i love i uh i love it so much i get like chilled every time i'm like gonna go get a treasure (laughs) i love indiana jones thousands of people have looked for this treasure and not been able to find it including at least four people who have sadly passed away in the search of it some people have been arrested in the search of it it's a huge thing people are really looking for this i wrote this one Mm -hmm. sad article that was um talking about this one woman who was in the middle of her fourth search for the treasure she was like staying in a hotel um and talking about how she had been searching for this for so long and it put so much money and time into looking for this treasure mm-hmm. um but sadly on 2006 2020 uh fen posted that you said you just said on 2006 2020 at least that's what it sounded like to me where am i on june 6th 
months. Mm-hmm. On June 6th, 2020, <laughs> this year, this month. Yeah. Well, this might, will this come out in June or will it come out in July? It'll come out July 1st. Oh, well, last month. <laughs> Fenn posted on the searcher blog, The Thrill of the Chase, that the treasure had been found. He said, it was under a canopy of stars in the lush, forested vegetation on the Rocky Mountains and had not moved from the spot where I hid it more than 10 years ago. I do not know the person who found it, but the poem in my book led him to the precise spot. I congratulate the thousands of people who participated in the search and hope that they will continue to be drawn to the premise of other discover to the promise of other discoveries. So Mm -hmm. the search is over. Look for more information and photos in the coming days. Uh, Fenn learned the treasure had been found because the person who found it uh, took pictures of the treasure chest and its contents and emailed them to him and said, I found it. This is where I found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to confirm, and Fenn confirmed with them. Um, Fenn has refused to say where the treasure was and who found it, except that it was a stranger who was, quote, from back east and that it was a man. That's all. Yeah. He has previously said that the treasure, that if the treasure were found, that the finder sh- would be instructed to wait 30 days before they make a big decision about what to do with it. So uh, some people are speculating that in the next few weeks, once it gets, once we get a little bit in ju- into July, we'll actually hear about, about it more and more yeah. will come out because the finder will have made a decision about whether or not to go public with everything and what he's yeah. going to do with it. Some people are saying that they have formed really positive relationships with other treasure hunters that they met online. And so many people have gone out in nature just looking for it. So all of this has nothing if you weren't the person who found it, which that's thousands of us. Um, Us as if I've been looking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We did. We did a hunt. That being said, people are really hoping that Forrest Fenn will have more to say and they're really hoping that he won't take his secrets to the grave because so many people have put in so many hours looking for this yeah. treasure that they feel like he kind of owes them an explanation. Definitely. So my hope for what happens with all of this is that the person who found it or Forrest Fenn himself will go back mm-hmm. to where it was hidden and put something, some sort of marker there so the people right. keep looking for it. So like the hunt isn't totally over. Like there won't be any monetary gain, but yeah, it'll still be like a oh we found the spot. Yeah, Which, you know, that would it, be cool. That's really just letterboxing, but <laughs> letterboxing's fun. Letterboxing's fun. Yeah, I mean, I have I have two thoughts about this. One is that I did see some people who are speculating whether or not a person actually found it. Um, like some people believe Forrest Fenn like never buried it in the first place <gasps> and that he just waited 10 years and was like someone found it because he's not releasing the name of the person and I saw photos of him with the treasure but that might be old photos like yeah, something like Forrest Fenn he buried yeah it. it was like something like Forrest or Fenn verified that this is his treasure but I didn't read into that um hmm. my other thought as well on so I know about this and I believe this is where you first heard about it too from BuzzFeed Unsolved which is yes. incredible I love BuzzFeed Unsolved um and they do the, the uh Ryan Bergara and Shane Madej go and they try to find the treasure um and it's hilarious it. it's so it's so funny it's my it's like I found my favorite BuzzFeed Unsolved episode it's so funny um but they say as part of it that like 
people have gotten within 200 feet and not seen it. And so I wonder how that's possible. Like, are they contacting him and being like, this is where I went? And he was like, oh, you were so close. Oh. You know, like, that's the other thing that doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, hmm. I don't know. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of question marks. I hope more information comes out that verifies that, like, yes, it was a real treasure. Yes, it was actually hidden, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't I don't just know if some, I want like, them to come out and say, like, this is where it was, but. Yeah. Yeah, I like your idea that they just, like, put a marker there and you would keep going out to try to find the marker. Like, to see if you can solve the clues. Yeah. So that's, like, half the fun is figuring out the clues. Yeah. Wow. A real-life treasure hunt. I know. I mean, that's, Which... like, what geocaching is. It's just treasure hunting. <sighs> I, I went letterboxing with my Girl Scout troop once, and it was a good time, you know? Yeah, I love solving clues. We love National Treasure. <laughs> Favorite movie. Well, so let me get comfy. Comfy to talk about the Japanese mafia. Right. That's what I asked you about. <laughs> I heard right. it mentioned in something. I was watching some show and they mentioned somebody getting kidnapped by the Yakuza. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, here we go. So, the Yakuza are oh, Japanese gangsters. I was, I've been pronouncing it wrong, too. Um, it's Yakuza, or Yakuza. They are Japanese gangsters formerly referred to as the Boryokudan, mm-hmm. um, which means violent groups. The term Yakuza is used to refer to both individual gangsters as well as their organized groups or families or Japanese organized crime in general. So it has many meanings. It, it means both singular and plural, essentially, mm-hmm. when talking about organized crime in Japan. The Yakuza are very real, ritualistic in their practice, and they have adopted samurai-like practices, although those are not as common in the modern era. As you know, because you mentioned it in episode six, they often have elaborate body tattoos, the which uh, which is helpful in identifying them um the yakuza are known for engaging in extortion blackmail smuggling prostitution drug trafficking gambling day labor contracting racketeering and loan sharking in particular loan sharking is really the big one they also control legitimate businesses in japan like restaurants bars trucking companies and more and they are involved in international uh, and they are involved international crime that just sounds like some like a member of the Yakuza had a son that was like, Dad, I want a restaurant. And I want to run a restaurant. <laughs> and they're like, okay, son, we'll give you the money to do that. <laughs> no, that's not why. I will, I will explain like why they're involved in legitimate businesses. But okay. yes, they, they do. They're not just like cover-ups. I mean, like pa- they're partially cover-ups, but like they do actually have legitimate business operations. The word Yakuza translates to good for nothing. It derives from the name for a worthless hand in a Japanese card game known as Oicho Kabu. Um, sorry, Oicho Kabu. The cards Yakuza, when added, give the worst possible total for the game, which is similar to blackjack, like how you don't want to go over 21. Um, so Yakuza is 893. So Yakuza is like a thing you don't want to get in the card game. And that's where their name came from. The Yakuza are thought to have organized out of gangs of Ronin, who were masterless samurai, um, who had turned to theft. The Tekia, who were peddlers, who peddled poor quality goods. And the Bakuto, who were gamblers. 
These social classifications emerge in the mid-Edo period, about 1603 to 1868. So they've been around since the 17th century. The Tekia were one of the lowest social groups during the Edo period. They formed their own organizations in an effort to fight against feudalism. So this was a feudalist society and they were poor. So they were like, no, we hate this society. We're like the poor are at the whim of the bourgeoisie. So we're going to start our own economy, essentially. Um, so they began to protect their own economic interests during Shinto festivals. Um, and they would do this through rent essentially for stalls so each peddler would pay rent to these organized groups of tekia for a stall assignment and protection they served as security um for mm-hmm. these for like the people trapped in the feudal in the feudal society they were like a form of protection um the tekia were highly structured and hierarchical they had a boss at the top known as the oyabun and that's still the term they use now and subsequent gang members were called the kobun again that's still the term they use now their hierarchy resembled a family the boss was looked at as a father figure and the gang members were his children during the edo period the government did formally recognize the tekia as a legitimate organization sort of outside of the feudalist economy and society Um, The supervisors also had almost samurai-like status in society, which is very high. Um, So they were allowed to have a surname and carry two swords, something not all Japanese people were granted, um, and something that was not common in a feudalist society. The other half of what would become the Yakuza were the Bakucho, and they were of even lower social standing than the peddlers because gambling was illegal and they were gamblers by trade. They would have small gambling houses hidden um, in abandoned temples and at shrines at the edges of towns and villages. Um, but they weren't really in the cities where the tekia were. Most of these gambling houses also served as loan sharking businesses, which is where the Yakuza would start to become involved in loan sharking. Um, and they also maintained their own security personnel. Society looked down on the Bakuto unlike the Takiya, um, and they did not have the same sort of respect that the Takiya gained. And the negative viewpoint of the Yakuza really comes from their roots in the Bakuto, um, including the name Yakuza, because again, it comes from a card game, and they were gamblers. Eventually, in the 20th century, these disparate groups would join together to become a much larger crime syndicate known as the Yakuza. These two initiate groups still survive, they came oh, together. these two initiates, yeah, they came together. <laughs> they joined, they joined forces. That's funny because I watched the movie They Came Together last night, so I was like, why did oh, you Oh, that, that movie's so funny. <laughs> it is really funny. I enjoy I'd never seen it before. I really liked it. These two initiate groups still survive through the ritual in the Yakuza initiation ceremonies. Again, they are very ritualistic people and they are a very ritualistic organization. And so the Yakuza initiation incorporates both the rituals of the Tekia and the Bakuto. Some gangs within the Yakuza will still identify with one group or the other, depending on the region of Japan and who their ancestors are. Mm-hmm. As I said before, the Yakuza structure is very hierarchical. The idea is that the leader is the sort of foster father as the boss of the Yakuza, and he rules his foster children who owe their allegiance to him. Um, later in the Yakuza's organization, they adopted a code of Jingji, which means justice and duty. So that's like their founding principles, essentially. 
The Oyabun Kobun relationship, which is the father son or boss gangster relationship, <laughs> is formalized. <laughs> boss gangster. Like it's it's hard because it's like they're bosses, so it's like the only way I can compare this to is the Italian mafia because if most Americans have seen at least one gangster movie, you know, like mm-hmm. where it's like you have to treat them with respect. You can you can't like it's the same idea. I said already in Japanese culture, there are honorifics, like there's a huge sense of family and duty and treating your elders well. So like that really translates even more so into the Yakuza um, and how they treat their Oyabun. Um, so their relationship is formalized by a ceremonial sharing of sake from a single cup. This is not an exclusive ritual to the Yakuza. It's also commonly performed at Shinto weddings. So this is something that like yeah, came that, straight from say, the culture. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the quote-unquote child or son figure receives a cup of sake that has a lot less liquid in it than the father or the boss because they are not as worthy of it. Like they are lower, so they get less. Mm. Um, and they drink until it's done. Um, and that formalizes their relationship as like father and son um, or boss and again like they don't see them as like minions because that's not the right word like they they're very loyal like they see the yakuza as their family um the yakuza gangs are organized into hundreds of separate gangs and then they are affiliated under one umbrella of some 20 conglomerates each conglomerate would have its own boss boss or father same idea like there's the italian mafia as an idea but then under the italian mafia like in new york we have the five families same idea mm-hmm. the largest conglomerate is the yamaguchi gumi which i just love saying and i know that they're like gangsters but like yamaguchi gumi wow what, rolls what off name. the tongue rolls what off the, the tongue names that i said earlier he was an nra president so- Right, but rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Uh, Rolls off the tongue. Um, Their conglomerate was founded in 1915 by Yamaguchi Harakichi. Again, great name. Um, Mm. But only really developed after World War II. The entire Yakuza structure did disappear in general during World War II because most of the population that was able was mobilized to participate in the war and the country became under very strict military government rule. However, they did return and flourished following World War II. At its largest in 1960, the Yakuza was thought to be 80,000 strong in Japan. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Um, perspective Yakuza can join as young as junior high school or high school. There are many who romanticize tales of the Yakuza taking in abandoned or exiled children, sort of being the home away from home. Um, many of the Yakuza come from low socioeconomic status and therefore rely on their bosses for like basic necessities. So mm-hmm. they in a, in a way, you could see it as them targeting vulnerable children who, like, need that support, um, which is how they become indebted to them and are forced to join the gang in exchange for food and labor and, you know, mm-hmm. the things that you need to survive. Members of the Yakuza gangs are expected to cut family ties and transfer their, lo- their loyalty entirely to the gang boss. So you no longer will consider yourself a member of that family. You are a member of the Yakuza family. Um, and whoever your boss is. 
the Yakuza is almost entirely male, and the very few women who are acknowledged are the wives of the bosses. They receive the title Anesan, or older sister. Again, with this, like, family idea. Yeah. Um, the largest conglomerate I mentioned, Yamaguchi Gumi, actually had a female bo- boss for a very short time after her husband, Kazuo Ta- Taoka, died in the 1980s, which is, like, cool. They could do that again for a longer time. <laughs> it was super brief. Yeah. But, like... Women could be syndicate bosses. Short. <laughs> Feminism. Um, <laughs> the overall boss of the entire Yakuza syndicate is known as the Kumiko. I'm going to show you a graph in a minute because this is about to get confusing. Yeah. Um, he's known as the Kumicho. Sorry. He will have a Saiko Komon, which is known as the senior advisor, or a Sohombucho, which is the headquarters chief. These are like your VP and your secretary uh-huh. of state kind of, you know, um, the second in command, um, to the boss is known as the Wakagashira and he will govern several gangs in a region with the help of the Fuko Hanbucho, who's responsible for a few more gangs. So again, de- delegating tasks, um, mm-hmm. the regional gangs are then governed by their local bosses and local bosses are known as Shaitei Gashira. Now, that's a lot of different titles, but in general, like, yes, they have these titles, but they're still like somebody's Oyabun or like boss or father, yeah. you know? So it's like, there's the, there's the big father, but then there's a bunch of mini ones too. The member, the member's connection is ranked by the hierarchy of the sake sharing. Um, so like come Kumi, Kumicho are at the top and they will control the subsequent Psycho Kamon, who control their own, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Oyabun's not the right word, but like who control their own underlings in the different Japanese cities. They mm-hmm. all have their own underbosses who have accountants, etc. So it's like, as you get higher, the sake sharing gets like larger and you get limited. So like the, kum- the kumicho would not necessarily be drinking sake with, like a lower member Mm -hmm. um and it all goes back to that sake sharing ceremony i'm going to quickly share my um shite that's like the the very under members are the shite i'm going to share my screen with you real quick so you can see this graphic um which i will put on our website i updated our website y'all it looks great (laughs) oh i got a notification earlier that some that a new device had logged into our email and it's your new laptop i just put that together it's me so you see Oyabun is at the top, but even the Oyabun has an Oyabun, you know? Mm-hmm. It just keeps going until you get to the top, which is the Kumiko, Kumicho. Sorry, I don't know Japanese. I think it's a beautiful language, though. So I'm translating as best I can. Those who receive sake from the Oyabun are part of his immediate family and then ranked in terms of elder or younger brothers. This means that an older brother could offer sake to a younger brother and each kobun can offer sake to a smaller affiliated organization. So if you were a shaitei, but you were a shaitei under the uh, kumicho, like you would have permission to offer sake. You would still be higher up than the shaitei of someone your Oyabun controls, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, it just it's just a big hierarchy. Um, for example, the Yamaguchi Gumi controls some 2,500 businesses and 500 Yakuza groups, which consists of five ranking subsidiaries. So there are 500 groups at five different tiers. Okay. 
Yeah. So there, but there might only be like one or two at the top tier and then like maybe 10 at the second tier, 20 at the third tier and the remaining, however many are at the bottom, you know? Yeah. Um, it's about like, it's, it's, it's often it's by region. So it's like the city has the overall controlling group and then each region has a smaller controlling group and then each neighborhood has one below that. And then each like block might have one below that, for (laughs) example. The most famous Yakuza ritual is the Yubitsume. This is the cutting off of one finger as a form of penance or apology. The offender must cut off the tip of his left little finger and give the severed portion to his boss. Oh, um, no, no, no. For the, yeah, further transgressions warrant further cutting of the finger. So the more of the finger you've lost, the more of a sign it is that you were disloyal in some way. And loyalty is like a big thing. Um, this practice has started to wane because it is easily identified by the police. Um, So it's easy to tell when you've been involved. This ritual, though, comes from the the traditional way of holding a Japanese sword. The bottom three fingers of each hand, which includes your little finger, are used to grip the sword tightly, um, and the thumb and index fingers are loose for movement. Removing the little finger, however, weakens sword grip, which would make the transgressor more dependent on the boss or the leader of, like, samurai, if it was samurais, for Mm -hmm. example, which is where this comes from. Um, for protection because he could not hold his sword as stably. So that's why they do it. The Yakuza's tattoos are known as Irizumi and they are all hand poked, sometimes with bamboo, which sounds like literal hell. That sounds so um, Yeah, the procedure is expensive, painful, and can take years to complete. When Yakuza members play Oichokabu um, cards, which is where they get their name from, um, the members will remove their shirts to display their full body tattoos to each other. This is one of the only few times that you could have the members um, all in one room displaying their tattoos to others as they normally keep them concealed in public. Um, They tend to be a secret. Membership has declined since the implementation of the Anti-Boryokudan Act in 1992. Um, there are still now approximately 28,000 active Yakuza members in Japan as of 2019, um, but nowhere near as many as there were in the 60s. As I mentioned before, the Yamaguchi Gumi is the biggest Yakuza family. They account for 30% of all Yakuza in Japan with more than 8,900 members. Its headquarters is in Kobe, um, and it directs criminal activities throughout Japan. Um, it is also involved in operations in the United States. Their Oyabun, Shinobu Tsukasa, has an expansionist policy and has opened operations in Tokyo, which is outside of their particular territory. So there have been some Yakuza turf wars. This family is so successful that it has become synonymous with Japanese organized crime. Many Chinese or Korean persons might not know the name Yakuza, but they would probably know the game Yamaguchi Gumi, um, which has been portrayed in many popular um, Korean, Chinese, and Japanese gangster films. The second largest family, yeah, the second largest fam- family is the Sumiyoshi Kai. They have an estimated 4,500 members, and they are known for having a more relaxed leadership structure. They function more like a federation than a typical hierarchical structure like the Oyabun um, and his Kobun and the Shaiti, Shaitai. I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it's more, it's more like a, like a federation, you know, it's, it's more it's more democratic than just hierarchical. 
Okay, makes sense. The, yeah, the Inagawa Kai is the third largest group with roughly 3,400 members. It is based in the Tokyo area, which the Yamaguchi Gumi have recently infiltrated. <laughs> um, and it was one of the first families to expand outside of Japan. And the fourth largest is the Aizuko Tetsukai. I know how to say Zuko because of Avatar the Last Airbender, <laughs> which everybody should go watch. This is a federation of approximately 100 of Kyoto's various Yakuza groups. So instead of them all reporting to one head Kumicho, they all have their own representation that meet and like vote and discuss together as opposed to having just an established leader of Kyoto. Very different. In Japan at the moment, the Yakuza are regarded as semi-legitimate organizations Immediately following the Kobe earthquake, the Yamaguchi Gumi mobilized um, to provide disaster relief services. This was in 1995. And this was widely reported by the media as a contrast to the much slower response of the Japanese government. Um, mm. The Yakuza repeated this aid after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. The groups opened up their offices to refugees and sent dozens of trucks with supplies to affected areas. Because of services like these, the Yakuza regard their income and, like, hustle as a collection of a feudal tax and, like, in exchange for a type of protection and public service. That's how they justify it. They're like, well, we do all this, you know, because when you need us, we'll be there. Is their, like, logic. Um, the Yakuza and its affiliated gangs control drug trafficking in Japan, especially meth. Many Yakuza syndicates officially forbid their members from engaging in drug trafficking, but others are heavily involved in it. It depends on the syndicate. It's important to note that drug trafficking is actually a very small problem in Japan compared to other countries, <laughs> um, especially other countries like organized crime in places like Colombia mm -hmm. or Bolivia. It's all drug focused and that's not the case in Japan. Um, most of the time, drug trafficking involving Japan actually happens outside of Japan. Like, they, tra they traffic drugs into the U.S., which I'm going to talk about in a minute. However, some Yakuza groups are known to deal extensively in human trafficking. Yakuza will trick girls from countries like the Philippines to into coming to Japan, where they are promised respectable jobs and good wages, and instead they are forced to become sex workers and strippers, which is very terrible. terrible. Yeah. Yakuza frequently engage in a type of extortion known as soikaya, Instead of harassing small businesses, the Yakuza harass a stockholders meeting of a larger corporation. Um, the Yakuza will continually attend the stockholders meeting to make sure that they're voting and making choices in the Yakuza's interest. And they will attain their rights to be at these meetings by buying a small purchase of stock. So instead of like many organized crimes target small businesses in their immediate areas because they know that they rely on them for protection and they know like, oh, like I can come in here every day, I live here. But the Yakuza instead target large corporations instead of small businesses, which is very different. Which is why like the people, like they don't want organized crime, but they also see the Yakuza as a necessary evil, which I again, we'll talk about in a minute. The Yakuza hasn't been known to make large investments in legitimate mainstream companies. The Oyabun of the Inagawa Kai bought $255 million worth of Tokyo Kyoto electric railway stock, which is a lot of stock. 
Japan Securities and Exchange Surveillance Commission has knowledge of more than 50 listed companies with ties to organized crime. And in March 2008, the Osaka Securities Exchange decided to review all listed companies and expel those with Yakuza ties. Mm -hmm. And there were many of them. Theft is not recognized as legitimate activity of the Yakuza. They do not encourage it and they do not see it as respectable. Their activity is semi-open and theft, by definition, would be a covert activity. So they survive off of people knowing that they exist. Like they don't oh. want to be a ghost in the closet. Such an act would be considered a trespass by the Yakuza community. Um, also, the Yakuza usually do not conduct the actual business operations themselves. Business activities are typically managed by a non-Yakuza member who pay protection fees for their activities. So if there's a business that's at stake because they borrowed money and they can't pay it back from like a rival gang or something like that, the Yakuza will be like, okay, we will protect you. We will be your security, but you need to go do this business dealing for us. Mm -hmm. Which is how they rope them in. For this reason, many in Japanese society consider the Yakuza to be a necessary evil because they offer protection from the government for small businesses. Again, they char- they target large corporations instead of community-based businesses their presence is also used as a deterrent to impulsive individual street crime so they think that crime and like crime in general is pretty low in japan they and they think petty and violent crimes are discouraged because of the yakuza because they're like because they don't believe in that um and they would like see that as attack as an attack on their people and their community Mm -hmm. yakuza activity in the united states is mostly centered in Hawaii, but they have made their presence known in Los Angeles, the Bay Area, Seattle, Las Vegas, Arizona, Virginia, Chicago, and New York City. Hawaii is a midway station between Japan and mainland America, which they use to smuggle meth, the ones that do deal with drug trafficking. Hmm. In California, the Yakuza has made alliances with local Korean gangs as well as Chinese triads. Another reason that the police do not really want to shut down the Yakuza is because of these dealings they have made with Korean and Chinese triads. And they are worried that if they manage to destroy the Yakuza, that those gangs from those other countries will come in and try to like oh. control the Japanese people. Yeah, it's, like, it's very layered. It's tricky. Mm-hmm. Handgun manufacturers in the U.S. account for a large share of handguns seized in Japan. Time back in the NRA, um, about 33% of guns in Japan in the 90s came from the U.S. In 1990, a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver that cost $275 in the U.S. could sell for up to $4,000 in Tokyo. Mm, now, Japan... I know. Now, Japan has figured out some laws and the proliferation of guns in the 90s drove the price down um, because they were able to get so many. And in 1997, that same gun would have only cost about $500. I don't know if this is still a problem now, but it definitely was. The FBI is suspicious that the Yakuza used various operations to launder money in the U.S., over time, the Yakuza have shifted towards white-collar crime, relying more on bribery in lieu of violence again they are not a violent people they don't believe in that also because um the anti boryukadan act specifically targets violent organized crime so the yakuza mm-hmm. were like okay great we're not violent anymore because then they can't be <laughs> they were they knew what they were doing there 
Um, for this reason, the Yakuza and the police have a complicated relationship. Yakuza membership itself is not illegal, and the Yakuza own businesses and gang headquarters are often very clearly marked. They all have their own sigils, and they're all marked with their, I want to say house, but that's not what it is, like syndicate on it. Mm. Um, gang whereabouts and, and activities are often known to Japanese police without them taking any action. Members have been called to perform public functions. Um, a specific example is a Yakuza force was assembled for security when Dwight D. Eisenhower was meant to visit Japan. And I'm not visiting, but that was something that they were going to do. Mm-hmm. The Japanese National Police Agency had no intention of criminalizing the Yakuza because it would only drive them further underground. So they'd rather them stay in sight. At their current state, they can easily be monitored for violent criminal activity. And that's really the key there, is that they have to be engaging in violent activity for them to be arrested. Now, yes, their numbers greatly depreciated after that 1992 act, um, and they really had to restructure how they took money, organized, like performed crime, stuff like that, because they couldn't be caught being violent. Um, so now it's much more again, bribery, things that are difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. Which is why the police want them out in the open. They don't want to drive them underground with further legislation because it's a little easier to catch them when they make a mistake if they are kind of like, yeah, we're here, I'm around. I did read too that like in Japan, especially local restaurants, businesses, et cetera, can tell by the tattoos when someone is Yakuza and they will like say oh like you can't eat here or whatever which i think is interesting but that hasn't caused an issue like they're very respectful of that Mm. um because again they don't want to target small local businesses because in a way they see it as their duty to protect those communities Mm um and that's the yakuza awesome yeah i don't know how to feel about them like I, keep, I didn't know any of that. <laughs> I keep going like up and down. Like you'll tell me some things and I'll be like, oh, and then you tell me about the human trafficking. And I was like, oh. no, the human trafficking is terrible. I mean, like yeah, there's still organized crime, but I do think it's interesting thinking about how different culturally that is yeah. to the organized crime we think of in America. Yeah. It's very different. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I'veBeenWondering.com. I swear I updated it. Got lots of things there now. It's very exciting. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I'veBeenWonderingPodcast at gmail.com. We would love to put it on our show. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. I love I love having friends. Jean, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? Well, you know I love a personality test. And I think it's time that we bring one back. Um, I want you to tell me about the Myers-Briggs test. Oh. I'm already aware of what my type is. I don't need you to tell me my type. I embrace it. Where are you? You're ESFJ. ESFJ. Okay. I'm INFP. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) You are. (laughs) Like, I'm like, yep. Um, I'm an INFP. Um, but I just, I want to know more about like where it came from, what it is. I've heard people be like, this is stupid and inaccurate. Um, I want to know more about that. But a lot of people love it. Oh yeah. I know people on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. So that's what I've been wondering. Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? 
what was Alexander Hamilton really like? Because wow. I've heard a couple things recently about him not being as great as the musical that we're going to watch on Friday depicts him as. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, um, yes. you know, maybe give me a more accurate picture. Love Lin-Manuel. Ooh. Love that music. I would love to. But, you I know, there might to. be some ugly truths they're hiding there. Absolutely. I'd love, I love to expose ugly truths, you know? Get them. Um, so, perfect. So, before next week's episode, if you have Disney Plus, check out Hamilton. Well, you can do it before and after. Watch it before you listen and watch it again after and see how your perception changes. It'll be fun. I can't believe we're just going to be able to watch Hamilton whenever we want. Like, four years ago, like, seeing Hamilton was, like, the ultimate, like, bargaining chip, you know? Yeah. Like... <laughs> It was like people's fun fact when they did two truths and a lie. And everyone was like, lie, you didn't see Hamilton. <laughs> Nobody's no seen Hamilton. Seen in person until January, so. Oh my God, yeah, rest in peace, Broadway. Um, I, I I can't think of anything to do to help protect all of the actors who are going to be out of work and seriously financially hit by this. Um, but if something comes out, I will definitely let y'all know. Because um, I'm super worried about the number of people that are put out of work because of the closing of theaters, and which is already an at-risk financially community because the arts are severely underfunded as is. Ah! <laughs> wow! Screams at the sky. Anyway, I'm looking forward to talking about this. Um, that is everything. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering. <laughs>